All right. Well, we've been on a series for the last uh, six weeks now. This is the seventh called Building a Firm Foundation. The foundation of that series has been Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And remember, in that passage, it lists several very fundamental doctrines that we need to master to go on to maturity. And we've been through five of the six, and we actually started the sixth last week. And this is a a two-parter on the sixth one, being um, the doctrine of eternal judgment. Now, for the Christian, the doctrine of eternal judgment is not bad news, it's good news. Because there's something called the great white throne judgment that we talked about last week, that the believer will not have to stand before the great white throne judgment. But there is a judgment that we do stand before, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. So we won't have to be accountable for our sins, because those have already been dealt with on the cross. How many of you ever heard a preacher preach that when we get to heaven, a... a, movie is going to be projected of your life where all of your sins are laid before Jesus and the Father and all the angels and all your friends and family are going to see a projection of all the things that you ever did. Has anybody ever heard that preached? Okay, several of you. So I've heard it preached in my upbringing. And I want to tell you that's wrong doctrine. That's wrong doctrine. And the reason it is is because we just read this morning, or I just quoted it to you, 2 Corinthians 5.21, during the uh, communion time, that he who had no sin became sin for us so that we might be called the righteousness of God. Jesus already dealt with your sins on the cross. He's not going to bring them up again on judgment day. That's good news for us, isn't it? You like that, don't you? And you should. You should. Jesus' blood, he he didn't die in vain, folks. If God's going to deal with our sins on Judgment Day, why did Jesus die? He's not going to deal with your sins on Judgment Day. Now, there is a group of people whose sins he will deal with on Judgment Day. That's the great white throne judgment. Okay? But let's go to a passage that's going to deal a little bit about what kind of judgment that we're going to face And as you'll see, when I use the word judgment, that has such a negative connotation. And as you'll see in this teaching, um, I'm going to use the word evaluation rather than judgment. It is a kind of judgment, as you'll see here. But moreover, it's an evaluation of what you did after salvation with the rest of your Christian life. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to read our master text. This gives us a little bit of an idea about the judgment seat of Christ. So when you find 1 Corinthians chapter 3, would you stand up with me and let's honor the reading of God's holy, majestic word as it's being proclaimed. Verse 10, by the grace God has given me, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. The day it's referring to is the judgment seat of Christ. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. 
If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, as, uh, as you remember, we began the subject last week talking about the Bema Seat judgment. You remember that? The Bema Seat now, the Bema seat um, was taken from the Isthmian Games, as you remember me talking about last week, and the Isthmian Games were, would be equivalent to our modern-day Olympics. And the Bema seat was a place where the laurel crowns were placed upon the heads of those who competed well. It wasn't a place where the losers got whipped. So the Bema seat judgment is a place of evaluation, a designation of rewards, if you remember that. Now, once again, we're not going to face the great white throne judgment, but we will face the Bema seat judgment. Um, so this is where our level of service for God's kingdom will be evaluated and rewards or loss of rewards will be determined at that time. Now, this is such a crucial doctrine to understand and to master because uh, once you understand that everything that you do right now is either contributing to or taking away from your eternal reward, you'll live differently. I guarantee you that, once you really get a revelation of that. In fact, if you really get this teaching this morning, um, this is a message that could literally change the direction of your life for whatever time you have left here on earth. It could literally change the trajectory and direction of your life and your level of reward in the hereafter. Actually, you could look back on this day and you could remember this day today and say, yeah, that's the day that I really got it. That's the day that I really started living with the end in mind. That's the day I really started to live with a kingdom perspective. So, you might want to just perk up a little bit, uh, dial it in right now, maybe uh, lean in just a little bit, and give this your full attention because I think this will be very, very important for uh, your life going forward at this point, for this point forward. Amen. All right. So here's a key concept for you this morning. What you do with your life after salvation is your gift to God. So salvation is God's free gift to you. Okay, so let's clarify that. Salvation is God's free gift to you. But what you do after salvation is your gift to God. And that's what's going to be evaluated. In verse 13 of our master text, it said, Every man's work will be made manifest. It will be made manifest. Now, notice that it doesn't say that our salvation will be tested. No, remember, Jesus already dealt with that. When we came to him in repentance, that was already a done deal. So our salvation won't be tested, but it says that the work that we did for the kingdom will be revealed or manifest at that time. And how will it be manifest or tested? Well, again, that master text said that it will be tested with fire. It will be evaluated with fire. Similar to how, you might think of it this way, similar to how a silversmith will test, if you will, the silver by using fire. The fire as that 
material heats up, uh, it removes the dross from the pure silver, the impurities from the high quality stuff. So similar to how a silversmith uses fire to separate the dross or the impurities from the pure silver, that's how the beam of seat judgment is going to work. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. So that's why verse 13 goes on to say the fire will test the quality of each person's work. That's how that's going to work. Now, on that note, I want to give you the divine prerequisite for reward. Now, listen, folks, it's okay to be motivated by a reward. Can I just throw this in here really quickly? Jesus himself was motivated by a reward. The Bible says of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's that mean? It means that he was looking on the other side of the cross to the reward that would be his. What is that reward? You and me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Even David, if you remember uh, young David before he went out to fight Goliath, he knew there was a reward involved in the person that slayed Goliath. Now, of course, he was motivated spiritually. He was motivated by the fact that this, he called him an uncircumcised Philistine. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares speak against the armies of God? So there was definitely a, a holy fire that, that rose up in him when that happened. But then he got to remembering, oh, oh, wait a minute, there's a reward for the guy that slays Goliath. So he went around asking, now what's the man get who slays Goliath? Can you tell me that again? He was motivated in part by a reward, and that's okay. That's okay. All right, so on that note then, um, verse 14 of our master text says, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Why would God put that in there if he didn't want us to be motivated to some degree by the reward that would be ours in the hereafter? So then only the work that has enduring qualities will be rewarded. Only work that has enduring qualities will be rewarded. So when the fire is applied, what doesn't get incinerated will be what is rewarded. Work of high value is what's going to survive. Work that survives will be of high value. Work that's done well and with perseverance and with pure motives. Pure motives. Uh, since I'm a musician, I'm going to use that as an example. Because uh, in my 40 years as a musician, I've noticed that musicians and singers are notoriously egocentric. Present company excluded, Don. Okay? We've got some great people, uh, uh, great musicians here and singers in, in our congregation that are true servants. But in my experience over my 40 years as a musician, um, I've noticed that good musicians who really give their, themselves to their craft are notoriously egocentric. You know, again, I can say that because I am one. So when a musician or singer takes the stage in service for the Lord to sing or play, he or she has to evaluate the underlying motives, the underlying motives for why he or she is doing what they're doing. See, if they're doing what they're doing simply to scratch some artistic itch or to bask in the limelight of the stage, then that sort of heart motive will cause his or her work to burn up 
at the Bema Seat Judgment. If one's talents are not laid before the Lord, folks, in His service and His service only, then there won't be much to be rewarded for at that Bema Seat Judgment. And it's easy to determine, by the way, if someone is being self-serving or serving the Lord with their talents. Because if a person can joyfully withstand being directed or told what to do by their elders or their team leaders, and he or she can serve in a content fashion, even when that person is not getting their own way, then that's a person who is truly a servant and whose service will be handsomely rewarded. Are you tracking with me so far? But if a person is insistent on having his own way in his service, and he serves only on his terms, and boy, have I ever seen that a lot over the years in uh, my service to the church. Lots of people will serve, but only on their terms. That's not a servant, folks. If a person constantly complains, or worse yet, bails out on what God has called them to do because things get a little rocky or they don't go the way that they like, perhaps, then that person's work will burn up in the judgment because he was serving himself, not the kingdom. And sometimes I know it's hard to distinguish, but that's why these gut checks have to happen. You need to check your, your motives. Do you see the difference there? Okay, let me use this example as well. How about public speaking? Well, those of us who take the platform in service for the Lord maybe have more gut checks than those who serve more obscurely, perhaps, um, because, you know, the platform can very easily be an issue of pride for a lot of people. If, if our motive is, again, to scratch some egotistical itch for the recognition of people, once again, that work will burn up. I remember many years ago, there was a, a man in the church that I attended at the time who was a, a very life of the party, gregarious kind of guy. He had, really had a lot of charisma and I uh, really liked him. And when uh, the worship leader at that church uh, stepped down at one point, this was after the, we, we were there, but when the worship leader of that church stepped down, this man offered his services to take over the worship ministry. And it was very perceptive of our pastor to turn down that offer. And they really needed somebody in the worship ministry at that time to lead their worship ministry. And this man had a pretty good voice. He could have done it. But the pastor turned it down. And when the man asked why he was turning down his offer, the pastor said, because you need it too much. Ouch. But that was an accurate assessment of where that man was at the time. The pastor, um, he recognized some pride issues in that man, and that's not the attitude that he needed to have on stage to lead that ministry. So it was very perceptive of that pastor. Again, I'm making that point because of motive. You know, getting back to that man, a few years later, that man moved to a different town and actually opened up his own church. 
And uh, that didn't last long because he figured out that pastoring isn't just basking in the limelight. <laughs> it's really tough in many respects. And you have to be called to this. And you have to do it for the right reasons. So as soon as he figured that out, he closed the doors of that church and it didn't last very long. So look at the screen. Just being busy, folks, that's not necessarily quality work. Busyness does not always translate into quality work. We must focus on work that produces fruit and builds up the kingdom in some way. And boy, it's very easy in church to hide behind a religious facade at the same time while you're trying to build up your own reputation. Therefore, always evaluate your motives in what you're doing. Always evaluate your motives. How are we doing so far? Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, always evaluate your motives. All right, let's move on to a, another factor here in uh, work that will stand the beam of seat judgment, and that's the excellence factor. God likes excellence. And that's why I love the story of Joseph, because Joseph was a man of excellence in whatever situation he found himself in. He did it with excellence, no matter who he was serving, by the way. So I want you to ask yourself this question this morning in a way to evaluate the quality of the work that you're doing, whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's a parachurch ministry like We the People is a parachurch ministry outside the walls of the four church, or if it's within the church, whatever it is that you're setting your hands to do, evaluate whether or not it's quality workmanship by asking a question similar to this. Am I executing God's plan for my life in a haphazard or self-serving manner, or am I striving for excellence and diligently endeavoring to do everything God's way? All right, I want to give you an example of this. In a church that I served in, many years ago, um, there was a cleaning day. And at this point in the, the, the ministry work that we were doing, and Donna and I were part of the worship ministry in that church, and we had enjoyed a certain level of progress in the ministry, yet we weren't afraid to roll up our sleeves and do dirty work sometimes. So we had a work day there one day. And one of the jobs that was on the list, you, you got to fill in your name beside the job that you wanted to to undertake. So there was a job of cleaning up a paint mess in one of the restrooms. I said, well, okay, I'll do that. So you had to scrub and scrape and get all that. Well, I got in there and I realized that whoever it is that painted that, that bathroom, I mean, a five-year-old could have done a better job than what I saw. I'm serious. I mean, there was paint everywhere. It was on the tile of the floor. It was on the ceiling. It was, it was the worst painting job I've ever seen in my entire life. Now, this was a good-hearted person. I, I knew the people that did this, by the way, that did this job. They were good-hearted people. They loved the Lord. But they got in there, and they're just like, okay, well, let's just get it done and get out of here. And there was no standard of excellence whatsoever in serving God by serving that church. And I had to go in there I, with a wire brush on a tile floor trying to get their mess up off the tile floor and ultimately failed because it was, had been on there so long it couldn't come off, so they had to replace the tile. Okay, So I had to repaint the whole room, um, try to scrub and get that paint off the tile, which was ultimately unsuccessful. And I, just, I was kind of blown away by that, why anyone 
who was serving the Lord would let a job go like that and not try to beautify it and make it better. It would blew me away. Now, I'm a bit of a perfectionist anyway, so I realize I kind of have that leaning anyway, which can be a good or bad thing depending on the scenario. Um, but uh, I just believe that God likes excellence. If you read the scriptures, you pick up on a trend, especially in the Old Testament. God likes excellence. He likes it. But there's another uh, side to this excellent story that I want to share with you. Oh, and before I go to that, let me just go to this verse real quick. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, which talks about God wanting us to be people of excellence who represent him well. So let's read this together. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. See, he's incentivizing us again. Do quality work because you're going to get a reward for it. Keep reading. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. It's not your pastor you're serving. It's not your elders. Um, It's not your boss. I mean, ultimately, you are serving in those places. But ultimately, who you are serving in those scenarios is Christ. And so, therefore, we need to be doing our work as unto him and make it as excellent as we can be as a praise offering to him. You agree with that? Okay, but again, there's another side to this excellence issue that we need to consider, and that's the issue of thinking things through thoroughly and prayerfully. See, quick decisions made without serious prayer or without thinking things through often produce works that don't last very long. See, just being busy with religious activity or whatever activity you're involved in, just being busy isn't necessarily a sign of work that will stand in the judgment. All right, track with me now. Tests in this life even will come that will reveal that what we ultimately built hastily and without long-term thinking. Tests in this life even will come that will reveal if we built something hastily and without thinking it through. But when we build carefully and with long-term thinking, folks, and a long-term perspective, what we build can therefore withstand the fire of the judgment because it was constructed in the right way and with the right heart motives. Okay? So for that reason, it's probably a good idea to maybe sit down and kind of evaluate the activity that you're doing in your life right now and determine if you're doing works that will endure the judgment or if you need to make some adjustments in your life. Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So we need to be doing things that we know that God has called us to, number one. Number two, we need to do it well. All right. Now, I want to take you through the rest of our time here this morning. I want to take you through uh, three parables of Jesus to kind of uh, solidify the points here this morning, to, to give us some action steps. So, so the first parable, we're just going to read them on the screen. The first parable is the parable of the fig tree. So let's just read this together. Luke chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for the past three years I've come to search for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Therefore, cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? 
So folks, what God is looking for here, what he's telling us in this parable that he's looking for here, you can fill this in, write this down in your bulletin, he's looking for fruitfulness. Clearly, God is looking for fruitfulness in our lives. And on that note, I want to give you a, a quote by Joyce Meyer, who also talks about the possible downfalls of just being busy without good quality work. And she says this, do you know that there's a difference between being busy and being fruitful? Did you ever stop to think that just being busy, running around in circles all day but not accomplishing anything, is the same as wasting your time? It's frustrating to expend so much energy and time and not have any fruit from your effort. If you're going to work at something, do it with all your heart and make sure it produces fruit. And let me say also on that note, folks, listen, if we want to have any credibility, if we want to have any influence, then we must be people who are fruitful. Amen. See, if unbelievers or people who are younger in the faith look at our lives and they don't see some degree of productivity and fruitfulness, then you just lost credibility. Okay? Nothing we say has much impact at that point. If they don't see some fruitfulness in your life, they just move on to somebody else who, in their eyes, does have credibility. Does that make sense? Let's move on to the next parable. That's the parable of the talents. And that's in Matthew 25. That's the parable where a master um, gives three of his servants different sums of money and goes on a trip. And he asks them to invest his money and make him a profit while he's gone. And when he comes back, he evaluates their work. He evaluates what they did while he was gone. So in Matthew 25, 19, it says, After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. Now that's the King James, uh, the word reckoneth. What he's talking about here is an evaluation, a deep evaluation. It's like an accountant who puts together a, a profit and loss statement for his boss. And he's examining the books to determine the financial status of that corporation. And, and again, this is no surface review. It's a very deep and very thorough investigation. So that word reckoneth there in the King James is the Greek word sonaros, sonero, I think is how it's pronounced. And it means to compare accounts, to settle accounts, or to make a reckoning. To make a reckoning. So here in Matthew 25, 19, that word meaning to reckon means to compare what was given to what the person actually did with what was given. That's what that means. It means to evaluate. See, folks, listen, one day we're going to face these questions. I don't know if it's going to be worded exactly like this. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But we are going to have to face some questions, such as, did you do anything with what was placed in your charge? Did it stay the same? Or did you increase what was given to you? What did you do with the good income that I entrusted to you? What did you do with the abilities that I gave to you? What did you do with the strength in your body that I gave to you? Were you busy helping others and building up my kingdom? Or were you just building up your own kingdom? 
See, I'm concerned, folks, that there will be many people in the body of Christ that will stand before that Bema seat judgment and then realize at that time that they had spent their lives in futile activity. They spent their lives pursuing their own comforts and pursuing their own pleasures and pursuing their own gain rather than giving themselves to the work of the kingdom. So what God will be looking for, look at the screen, what God will be looking for, please write this down, is productivity and increase. Yes, God is looking for productivity and increase in his people, or else he would not have given us these parables to learn from. Let's look at the third and final parable. This is a little bit of a longer read here, but this is Luke chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool. Let's read this together. Then he told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced an abundance. So he thought to himself, what shall I do since I have nowhere to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and will build bigger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. Then I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be required of you. Then, who will own what you have accumulated? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now, this is not teaching against having money and goods. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, if you store up only to yourself, and you're not rich toward the kingdom of God, then that's foolish. That's a foolish way to live. So, it's... Thank you, Bill. That's a bad investment. What God is saying here is that he wants us to be kingdom-minded. Kingdom-minded in all we do. Kingdom-minded. And, and folks, listen. This is the parable of the rich fool. But you don't have to be rich for this parable to apply to you. See, most Americans already have a surplus of goods and, and money. We already have a surplus. And those blessings come from God, of course. What you do with what you have in your hands right now is a sign of your heart toward God and his kingdom. So what are we doing to give him a return on his investment in us? All right, we're coming down home stretch here, and as we do, I just want to give you a, just a really quick rundown. I'm going to blaze through this kind of fast. That's why I didn't put this in your notes. But if this, is, this interests you and you want my slides later, I can, I can give all these to you. But I just want to give you, before we come to a close here in the next few minutes, the next 30 or 40 minutes. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're a tough, you're a tough crowd. All right. Here's the five crowns. The first one is the crown of incorruption. The crown of incorruption. I'll give you the reference to it. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 9.25. This is given to believers who have practiced self-discipline. Yes, there are rewards to those who practice self-discipline in their lives. So this says, 1 Corinthians 9.25, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So you could call this the incorruptible crown or the crown of incorruption. So it's the practice of self-discipline. 
disciplining yourself in the, the disciplines of the faith and also saying no to those things that you know that are not pleasing to God. Disciplining yourself to fight the good fight of faith. The second crown is the crown of rejoicing, and this is often called the soul winner's crown. Our reference here is 1 Thessalonians, easy for me to say. 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? This is the Apostle Paul saying, you are our crown. Because our ministry brought you into the faith, you are our crown. That's what he's saying. So this is the soul winner's crown. The next crown is the crown of righteousness. And this describes a crown that is given to those who are longing for Jesus' appearance and have lived a holy life in anticipation of his return. When you endeavor to live a holy life, you get a crown for that. Here's our master text or our text for that. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. So since I've quoted this several times throughout uh, this series so far, again, my mother used to teach me, uh, plan like you're going to live forever, but live like you're going to die tomorrow. If you knew your execution day was coming tomorrow, you'd have all things in order, right? You'd have all your business in order, all your accounts with people settled. And when I say accounts, I mean you don't want any bitterness or unforgiveness or any unresolved conflict with people uh, when you know that tomorrow is your last day on earth. You want to live differently, right? So you get a crown for that. Living a holy life in anticipation of Christ's return. If you knew that tomorrow was going to be the day, you'd get some things cleaned up, wouldn't you? We get a crown for that. The next crown is the crown of glory. This is what's often called the pastor's crown, but I'm also going to refer to it as the elder's crown, because as you're going to see in this text, on this point, uh, pastors and elders who serve well are eligible for this crown. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 through 5. Uh, elders, perk up. This is for you too. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. The reference to that crown is for elders and pastors in their churches who serve well. So elders be encouraged by that. And the last one is the crown of life, or sometimes called the victor's crown. That's the martyr's crown. Let me give you the, the reference for that. James 1, 12. I actually have two references for this one. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then in Revelation 2.10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you 
life as your victor's crown. Your victor's crown. So the victor's crown is for those that, yes, they give their lives for their faith, but it's also for those who have been persecuted and live through it, but they persevere under those severe trials. There's a crown for those as well. And can I say one more thing before um, I give you a couple more scriptures and then we're going to close? Folks, you know, I don't know what's going to ultimately happen in America. I, I just, I sense that things are going to turn around. That's just, that's my sensing. That's the, I, I sense that, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was uh, uh, watching a movie called The Way Home. And it was about... Um, a group of people that escaped a Russian gulag and they walked 4,000 miles to freedom through a desert, through the, the mountains. It was, it's an amazing story of how they walked 4,000 miles to get out of this Russian gulag and out of all these communistic regimes. They had to walk around these areas and very in, in the wilderness. It was a horrible experience. Uh, but they walked 4,000 miles to freedom. And I was thinking about this, you know, this was during World War II. And during World War II, people thought back then, this is the end of the end. Because the whole world was at war. This, was the, this, is the, this is surely the end of the end. But yet, here we are all these years later. So, I'm just hopeful that if Jesus doesn't return here real soon, that this is going to be another time like that. That, yeah, it might be awful for a while, but, but it seems like God always breaks in. And things go in a different direction. And they always get better. We may go through some stuff. But things tend to always get better. Because there's an uprising of people. There's a remnant that works for the kingdom. And prays and fasts. And God always responds to those things. Okay. So um, I, I say all that. To say that. Uh, you know folks this is not necessarily over. I don't know what we're going to face. But um, I do want to say this. That if you're martyred for your faith. Do you know that's an honor? It's an honor to be martyred for your faith. It's, a, it's an honor to be persecuted for your faith. There's a special level of reward for those who are persecuted for their faith. So let's not be afraid of that. I know it's not pleasant while it happens. But it's an honor to be persecuted for your faith. It's an honor to be martyred for your faith. Okay? You got really quiet on me on that one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but you know what? Here's what we're ultimately working for. Going back to the, the parable of the talents, I'm almost done, so hang with me. A pastor get to, gets to say I'm almost done at least 10 times, okay? So just bear with me, okay? <laughs> that was only number three, okay? I got, I got seven more to go, <laughs> okay? All right. <laughs> Matthew 25, 21 is what we're ultimately after. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's what we're after, isn't it? Stay strong through the process, folks. So I'm going to end with this slide right here. I want to give you a Bema seat judgment. This is, if you will... Um, your, your take-homes, your takeaways for this teaching today. A Bema seat checklist. Are you ready? This isn't in your notes, but if you want to 
take a, a picture of the screen as we go down this list, or if you want me to send you the slides later, I'd be happy to do that. But let's just go down this list. Number one, am I conducting myself in my personal life in a way that brings glory to God? Evaluate everything that you're doing in your life right now. Am I conducting my life in a way that brings glory to God? Number two, what am I doing regularly that is building up the body of Christ and advancing God's kingdom? And each of you have a different call, okay? It's all unique because we have to have each other in order to build up the body of Christ and do all the different things that needs to be done. Number three, how am I preparing myself to be used in a greater way in the future? Am I growing Ask yourself, am I growing? Can I see signs of growth in my life? Number four, is what I am doing being done truly thinking of others or just myself? In other words, am, am what I am doing, is it being done with a heart of a servant? Or have I been self-serving in my motives? Am I serving only on my terms or am I doing it sacrificially, you see? And the fifth and final one on our BMS seat checklist is, is what I am doing fruitful? And what I am doing fruitful? Is it producing? Is what I have put my hands to, is it producing? Can I identify good fruit? Or have I just been spinning my wheels with very little, if any, good fruit to show for my labor? That's our Bema Seat checklist that you can take home with you and, and just bring that before the Lord. Would you stand with me for a moment? I'd like to ask us to do something this morning that, you know, I think that sometimes uh, we might sit through a sermon and not really think much about how it applies to us and I'm confident that the Holy Spirit was speaking to many or all of you during that teaching on the Bema Seat Judgment, that everything that we do now lasts for eternity. But I'd like us to do this. If you would just close your eyes for a moment. I'd like us to have just a, a quiet moment with the Lord, you and the Holy Spirit. And I'd just like to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, how would you like for this teaching to apply to me? What changes do I need to make in my life so that my life can bear fruit for eternity? What things am I doing that are futile, that don't have any eternal value, that I need to set aside or put less emphasis on? And what are things that do have eternal value that you want me to put more emphasis on? So I'd like for you to just contemplate that in your heart, have a, just a quiet conversation with you and the Holy Spirit. And listen, when you ask that question, be quiet for a minute after you ask it and listen. And the Holy Spirit will probably give you a word picture or something. He'll identify something if you're really paying attention to an area that he, he wants you to, to change. So go ahead.
You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.